And we are now in the middle of the fourth chapter of Matthew. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read six verses, 12 through 17. I'm going to read those six verses, and then I'm going to think about them together with you and ask that God might help us to have light. So this is the fourth chapter of Matthew, starting in verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I would love to take a moment and just pray for us. <clears throat> Our confession concerning these words, that they're not mere words, it's not just ink on a page, but that these words are very life to us. The testimony of the church down through the ages is that God has breathed out these words for our benefit, and that all of them are suitable for rebuke and correction and training in righteousness. We say those things, but if you're like me, our minds are spinning and elsewhere and around and things that are confusing, and we have doubts. And so let's pray together now that God's Spirit helps us as we consider these verses. Let's pray. Father, I ask for the the mercy that would be necessary, the grace that would be necessary for you by your Spirit to give us eyes to see that you would dig ears for us so that we could be hearing, and that as we see and hear, you would give us a heart of beating flesh to long after you and to want to walk according to your ways. Help us to, to do the simple thing that seems simple, but is not, and that is to live according to our confession. We confess that this is the very Word of God. It's living, it's active. And so keep us, good Father, keep us from treating it like an idle word today. We need your help in this. That I pray for those who are hurting, distracted, doubting, that you would give confidence and hope and faith. We are all in some ways hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, so God, convict us and help us to see marvelous things in your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Began looking at a book recently. And the book is centered on the ideas of truth, and goodness and beauty, which have been often called the transcendentals of life. And this particular author makes the case that of all the progress that has happened in the world, one of the great losses and the reason that we are perhaps more chaotic, more disunified, and have more difficulty in the world is that we have lost truth, beauty, goodness, and instead been enamored by and focused on the things that we can learn about the way that the world is, which is good. I am grateful for advances in the field of medicine and understanding those things. I'm grateful for the miracle that it is for controlled explosions in a car that brought you here today. 
I'm grateful for the awe-inspiring advance of scientific discoveries in galaxies and stars. I'm grateful for remote-controlled cars, especially the big kind that we have on Mars. I'm grateful for food production, the means that we can survive and not worry as hunter-gatherers. There are all kinds of bits of progress. We have discovered a lot about the way the world is. And what this author argues is that what we have lost is any sense or unified understanding of what the world ought to be. And that question of what the world ought to be, how should we be organized? Who gets to say what is right and what is wrong? How are resources set up? What is goodness itself? What is beautiful? What is true? That these are the very questions that drive human beings. It's an awe-inspiring kind of question to think about how should things be organized? In undergrad, I studied political science. And so we were bombarded with questions of what should societies be organized? What's the best political system? And I was always partial to or enamored by sort of sarcastic statements. Things like, Democracy is the worst form of government except for all of the rest. You've heard this statement before? Things like that. Aristotle wrote a book on politics where he came to the conclusion at the end of all of his inquiries of how people should be organized that the best way to live would be to be living under a benevolent king because every other form has more negatives. In fact, many of the stories that we tell one another Many of the conversations that I had in those political science classes, and then I was glutton for punishment with an MPA, a Master's of Public Administration, many of the classroom discussions that were the most lively were not discussions about what is, or scientific sort of stuff, but what ought to be. Who had the right to say what ought to be? And at the core of that, what we were all discovering and trying to think through is a description of a right and proper kingdom. If you were in charge... What laws would you make? If you were in charge, what laws would you rescind? If you were in charge, how would you develop and sustain the perfect economy? If you were in charge, that question, I believe, is the heartbeat of every single human being. I believe it's what we wrestle with when we think about ideas of personal or individual meaning. Most people think that all they want in life is to just not work and do whatever they want. What most people find is that when they get to a point of not having to work or doing whatever they want is, they often don't know what it is that they want to do. And they end up struggling with meaning and purpose and wondering, am I enough? Have I done enough? Is this right? The battle of all human society, and I believe the longing at the center of every heart, is to know and to live in the question, am I what I ought to be? Is this place what it ought to be? And the reason that this is an important question in Matthew chapter 4 is because Jesus is going to begin a public ministry at this point. And he's going to describe himself not only as a king, but he's going to invite us to imagine a kingdom. Jesus, having come into the world as the rightful king of all things, is going to help us imagine 
the kingdom that he is ushering in. He not only has the right to command repentance from us or obedience, which he will, we're going to see in a second in this passage, but he also is building something. He's inviting our imagination concerning what ought to be in the world. So what I want to do as we consider these verses together is learn a little bit more about the king. There'll be as little bit we learn about the king himself. Matthew up to this point, chapters 1, 2, and 3 have been establishing the person of Jesus as king over all things. Second, I want us to think again about the pathway to this king. What's the entry point? How do you get an audience with him? And Jesus is going to double down on the same thing that John the Baptist said. But more than that, I want to imitate and follow in Jesus' footsteps. It says that he began to preach the kingdom of heaven. And I want to think together with you about this kingdom. I want to consider the contours of a kingdom that Jesus is ushering in and ask together with you, do you want a kingdom like this? Have you been awakened to imagine a place where this is the rule, not merely what we're aspiring to? So that's the goal. First, a little bit more about the king. Second, the pathway, the audience of the king. And then finally, I want to start to imagine the kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. Here's the first thing that we learn concerning the king. And I could give him a good resume all the way up to this point. We know that this king is divine. He is born under miraculous circumstances. His virgin mother is with child from the Holy Spirit. It is the divinity of God in human flesh that has landed. So the first thing to say, if you want an origin story, and I love origin stories, I lose interest with Marvel very quickly after the origin story, because they can just make up whatever rules they want. But I don't mind origin stories. It's also the name of my nephew's band. But origin stories, if you want the origin story of Jesus, he has a miraculous divine origin story. He's landed here under miraculous circumstances and is fully divine in human flesh. As a human being, he is humble. He is born under humble circumstances. He is the kind of king that does not insist, but instead serves. He has endured the humiliation and the fallenness of this world as king. As a king, we know that he is not only here to punish. He does not come here merely to punish. In fact, he's later going to say, I did not come into the world in order to condemn the world. It was condemned already. But this king has come on a mission. We know that so far the resume of Jesus is that he is coming to save, which is good. Why are you here, O powerful one? Remember we said it could be that the story of Christmas is one huge cosmic don't make me come back there, like a dad smacking the back seat. He could have just showed up and said, that's it, you're all dead. But this king in his resume has come as a saving king. So he's divine, he's humble, he's in human flesh, he's a saving king. Now, these first few chapters, as well as the resume, Matthew has shown us that he is the promised king. He's fulfilling every prophetic statement of the promises of God from the beginning of creation down through to his coming. More than that, this king is righteous. We saw in the beginning of chapter 4 that in the face of the tempter, in the face of his own deep hunger and real needs, his temptation for pride and rule and reign, All of these things that he resisted and was utterly and perfectly righteous. He was a king who has integrity down to every fiber of his being. And now we're going to add one more aspect of this king. He is a speaking king. It tells us in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 4 
that from that time Jesus began to, and this is an interesting statement, because he begins to do a lot of stuff. In the next few verses, it says he's going to heal all kinds of illnesses. Uh, So from that time forward, you could say Jesus began to spit. Remember when he spits on the ground and he makes mud? And then he, you know, from that time forward, Jesus began to turn over tables. From that time forward, Jesus began to invite the downtrodden. He began to do a lot of things, but we know here that this king will not be silent. He began to preach. And proclamation is going to be a theme of the rest of the New Testament. It's what the Bible is. It's proclaiming this king has come. And so it's interesting that Jesus began to preach. He said words. Now, I point this out because there is a common and well-known phrase concerning what is necessary for the gospel. Maybe you've heard this phrase before. You could probably You could probably finish the line for me. It has been said that everywhere and at all times, we should preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words. And when necessary, use words. It's been attributed to, I think, St. Francis of Assisi. I'm not sure if he actually said it or if it's a a make-believe thing. The ethic, or the sort of sentiment, I should say, not the ethic, the sentiment of that statement, I agree with and I love. I hope that in some sense, us as Christians, the way that we live, the way that we love, the way that we are humble, the way that we serve, our inviting nature, I would pray that the aroma of Christ is so thick on us that by the time someone ever hears something from us, they'd say, oh, I totally knew already. Yeah, you're committed to Jesus, right? Uh, Yeah, I've seen this love before. You're committed to Jesus, right? I've seen selflessness before. Of course we would love that. That sentiment's wonderful. It's just that it's overstated, and it turns out that if that's the thing we're going for, preach the gospel everywhere, and when necessary, use words, Jesus himself didn't even live up to that ethic. He opened his mouth and he spoke. To fully proclaim what is coming, we must speak. Jesus is a speaking king. So that brings us to the next question. Well, what does he say? If a king has landed, and this is in many ways his first public statement He said a few things to John the Baptist. I'm sure there were crowds around. He spoke to the tempter in the wilderness. But this is, as far as Matthew's concerned, his recorded speech. What is he going to say? And it turns out that he repeats the same message that John had about entrance into this kingdom. In a sense, the words of Jesus are an invitation to himself. But before you get to him, there is a gate to come through. There's a door to open for entry to the king. How do you get an audience with this king? He says, well, here's going to be the thing. Repent. So the resume of the king leads to us adding him speaking. And the thing that he says reiterates this door of the kingdom, which is repentance. And so we must say, as clearly as we can, that a willingness to change one's mind A willingness to admit that we are wrong, to love the things that God loves, and to grow in our disdain for the things that God disdains. Our ability to not only see these things, but then to turn from them. And even if it takes one degree of repentance over the course of time, that we are in a life pattern of repenting, that there is no other path to Jesus than this. Jesus opens his mouth. It's a public invitation to himself. And the first word he says is repent. This means that the very real and often painful cost of coming to Jesus is a rejection of self-rule. It is a reorienting of what is good or right according to God's plan. 
It is a willingness to surrender all that you had previously seen as right and, when possible, to receive those things back from God and, where possible, to joyfully and willingly turn from them and walk away. A life of repentance is not optional for super-Christians. It is the first door to get an audience with the king. That's what Jesus is going to say. And so, as we live like Jesus lived, I hope that there's a sense in which we're proclaiming the gospel as we live, but we should also use words. And now, that was a speed rush in many ways to the first two points that I wanted to make. What I want to spend a majority of our time on is thinking about this very interesting phrase. Jesus says, repent. In a sense, he's put a door before him. Get an audience with me. He says, walk through the door of repentance. The question might be something like this. Well, what will we receive? If and because Jesus is asking you to repent, to give up all self-rule, then it's natural for you to say to yourself something like, but what am I going to be ruled by? I just gave you the illustration of Jesus standing with a, as a king. There's a kingdom unfolding behind him. Man, the, the pictures of the Bible sometimes are so great. And by the time, you know, Jesus comes humbly in human flesh and he's in, a, he's in a manger. By the time the New Testament ends, the unfolding nature of his kingdom, he's going to be coming on a ride, uh, riding on a white horse with a sword out of his mouth and he's tattooed everywhere. And he's going to be ushering in a massive army and the kingdom's going to be like floating with him back to the earth, Right? So that happens. I know it's a spoiler, but it's near the end. So he's, imagine Jesus sets up the thing and he's the king, he's landed. He puts a door in front of you and he says to everyone, come through this door of repentance, reject self-rule. You naturally might think to yourself, okay, when I open this door and step through, what will I see? And so the rest of the New Testament, Jesus comes, and this is what's interesting, preaching. Someone once said, someone once said, What's the difference between teaching and preaching? Well, teaching is explaining something. Preaching is explaining something while exalting in that something. It's a, there's, there's a passionate plea involved. So I want you to imagine Jesus not only explaining, but him exalting in what? In the kingdom of heaven. How did Jesus expect to capture people's hearts and imaginations in coming to him, especially when requiring something so costly like repentance? Well, he made it a practice to describe the kingdom. He said, when you open this door, whatever life you think you've been living will turn out to not have been real life. And whatever happens when you come through this door to me, the ushered in kingdom that will come with me will be more real than anything you could ever imagine. And so what I want to do is I want to start to imagine this kingdom. And the passage that's given to us from the prophet Isaiah in verse 14, 15, and 16 are going to help us to begin to think about, to imagine together the idea of a kingdom. Now, many of us need to admit that we have baggage coming in. If I say the word like kingdom, you might say to yourself, this sounds, a lot of us have, have issues with authority because we've seen authority abused. The idea of a king might be negative. In fact, it is true that in a fallen world, the reason that Aristotle writes about it and the reason that people say things like democracy is the worst form of government except for all the rest that have ever been tried is because we know what it's like to live trying to rule our own life, let alone other people. It never goes well. And yet, what is it about us that makes us keep asking the question? If I ask you to describe a kingdom, maybe what comes to your mind are terrible examples. 
I think about how many stories are essentially this story. Imagine a kingdom. What if you were going to set something up? What would it be? I think about the book, Lord of the Flies. Have you heard of this book? There's going to be a little bit of spoiling, but I think the statute of limitations is up for that. Don't you think? Lord of the Flies, at the very heart of the book, the wonder and the oddness and the terror of the whole thing is these boys have to set up a kingdom. What could go right and what could go wrong if these boys have to set up a kingdom? And you know that what comes out of it is cruelty and desperation and rules that are leveraged for the good of some and the neglect, the rejection of others. And ultimately, the setting up of that kingdom ends in death, right? That's just like a, what a great hopeful morning. We've all, we've all understood that if you were to set things up yourself, I hope you've understood that at least you have one rung down the arrogance ladder to know that if you were officially in charge of everything, that it probably wouldn't go too much better than Lord of the Flies. As a side note, I read Lord of the Flies as an 18-year-old. I'd gone off and I was a poor missionary and I realized that I hadn't read very much in my life. So I decided I'm going to read books that everybody talks about. And we didn't have any money or anything fun to do, so I would go to a Barnes & Noble in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And I found Lord of the Flies, and I brought my own bookmark with me. And I realized that if you sit in a chair in Barnes & Noble for a couple hours, you know, no one bothers you. It's amazing. So I read and read and read. And then it was time to go, and I put a bookmark in there and just hoped no one would buy that book. And I came back the next week, and no one had bought that book. And I did that three or four times until I finally read the whole thing. And then walked out shamelessly without having bought it. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why didn't you have one single friend who would have said to you something like this, Lance, have you ever heard of a library? <laughs> and, that, and then I, I don't know what I would have said to that. Something probably like, oh, look who has 50 cents. I, mean, I don't know what I would have said. But the point would be, I read many books at Barnes & Noble sitting like that, and Lord of the Rings, was, Lord of the Rings, that was not one. That, they would have kicked me out for loitering, for sure. It's too long. I read Lord of the Flies sitting like that. The point would be for many of us, we've seen and we can imagine when this goes wrong, but we do not have a very active imagination of what can go right. I believe that our hearts are tied to what could go right, that those of us who have not fallen into the depths of despair, maybe what anxiety or depression a hopelessness really is, is an inability to imagine what could go right. And for many of us, no matter how difficult things have gotten, we still have something, I think, in our hearts that can say, but I can imagine what goes right, but we're not very well tuned in our minds. Let's let the preaching of Jesus, who he is, and the words of the Bible invite us to imagine what kind of kingdom this is. The first thing that we can say about this kingdom is that it is for those who are far off. It's interesting. Jesus leaves. He hears that John the Baptist has been arrested. He withdrew to Galilee. The first question is, why did he go? A natural response could be, he's afraid. Is Jesus afraid? John the Baptist got thrown in the slammer. Maybe. Maybe Jesus thinks, I'm going to have the same fate. I've got to get away from Jerusalem. But we know from the rest of the scriptures that that's just not true. Jesus was fearless in the face of threat. There were times when crowds were rushing in on him, angry crowds who wanted him dead, who had the right and the authority to do so, and they come in on him, and then it says that he just decided to walk through the crowd. Just a total boss. He just 
He just walked straight through and they couldn't touch him. Other times in the face of threat, he said to those who were threatening him, you think you take my life? You can't take my life. I lay down my life when I want. Jesus was not afraid of the fate of John the Baptist. So what is he picturing instead? He withdraws because he says, I better be about my mission. It's time. John the Baptist is the forerunner. His ministry is concluded. It's time. And what it's time for is to him to start in the places of those who are far off and to call them into this kingdom. This kingdom will not be for the elites only of Jerusalem. They'll get an invitation later. Not only the elites of Jerusalem, not only those who have righteous lineage, but he starts in a far off place. Those of you who maybe have a little map in your Bible or have looked this up before, or maybe have been there, Pastor Brian's on an airplane to to Israel right now. Happy for him. Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, is north of Jerusalem, a good ways off. It is a place of mixed lineage. That's why Isaiah calls it Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles. Capernaum, where Jesus ends up and begins his his campaign for the kingdom. It would be like setting up your campaign for president in Sop Choppy or something like that. I'm sorry. Sop Choppy is just a fun name to say. For anyone who's from there, I always insult it and I'm sorry. But it's small and it's far away and it's fun to say. Capernaum would have been like that. A small collection of tiny fishing villages on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus goes out because he knows the prophecies have been spoken concerning these places. That yes, even those far off, small, God-forsaken kind of places are going to be invited into this kingdom. The way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. Yes, even Zebulun and Naphtali. They who have been in darkness are going to see light. This kingdom will be for all. These areas of northern Israel were the weakest. They were the first to fall when invading armies came in and Israel began to crumble and everyone started to wonder if the promises of God failed. These were the places that were first enslaved. And Jesus goes to them first, sets up shop in Capernaum, and begins to preach there. This kingdom will be for everyone, even the unimportant. Then further, Isaiah is quoted here from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, and we're going to read those together because they give us more of an ethic or an idea of what this kingdom is going to be like. Here's Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 says, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shown. I want to, for a moment, stir our imaginations toward the kind of kingdom Jesus is inviting us into. What a phrase Isaiah chapter 9 starts with. But there will be no gloom. Gloom's a great word. How you feeling? A little gloomy. What brings you gloom? It's a good question. What is downright gloomish in your life? Jesus says, there's coming a day when my kingdom is fully ushered in that all who are there will experience no gloom. No gloom. Not allowed. Huge sign on the wall. Gloom? Don't even try. No gloom. And this no gloom will happen for someone who is in anguish. Imagine a world where there's no anguish. Imagine a world of no pains and aches and hurts. 
you hurting others or being hurt. It says no gloom for those who are in anguish, the idea being that anguish will be taken away. It says later that he who was brought into contempt in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali will be made glorious. A removing of contempt. I was trying to think of a good way to describe contempt. I think contempt could be described as a, a sort of edge of hatred kind of disdain, an accusing disdain, a disgust that comes from judging one's being or activities with hatred. Those who don't measure up, those who rejected. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate contempt. I felt contempt when I was in ninth grade. One of my first days of ninth grade was at Valley Middle School in Grand Forks, North Dakota. It was a huge step for me. I grew up, I tell people, in the suburbs of a, of a town of 300. And in that place, up through eighth grade, my class was about 20 kids. And then we had to jump on the bus and get shipped into Grand Forks to go to the big school. And our class became around 300 or 350 kids. And I'd heard things. I had friends through sports or basketball or church or whatever in Grand Forks. And I'd heard things about what kids were like and who to avoid and how crazy it had gotten. And I was sitting at a lunch table in this massive room for the first day. And I'm trying to be friendly and make friends. And I said a couple things that I thought were sort of witty, kind of like, haha, lighthearted. And I'm judging everybody to try to see, like, is this landing? And a few kids are kind of smirking, which is like, for a ninth grade boy, that's pretty big. That's essentially exclamation point win. I mean, sort of a smirk going around. And then I look to the side and I see the blazing eyes of a kid who I'd heard about before. This was about his fourth year in ninth grade. Not really, but he did have to repeat one time. And I had heard about the fights that had happened and the things that he'd done to kids and how he'd been in jail for selling arms to Iran and like all this kind of stuff. You know how rumors, you know how rumors go and you're in, in middle school, right? This was the kid and he just happens to be across from me and I make these little witty statements and I'm like, hey, I'm just being friendly, new kid, whatever, a couple smirks, I'm winning, I'm winning, I'm winning, blazing contempt. And he's just staring at me with this kind of anger and everyone gets silent. And then after a couple of seconds, he says, who is this new dork? Just looking at you makes me mad. I should stand on the table and kick your teeth in. That's what this kid says. And I think to myself, what a place. Like, this is, this is a kingdom of chaos. I don't know what I stepped into, but I've never experienced contempt like this. So I just didn't say anything again. I moved to Wyoming. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't. I'm just kidding. I didn't. I withdrew to Galilee. No, I don't know what I did. But you know that feeling? That feeling of whatever you are or whatever you're doing is rejected by me? A kind of disdain? A kind of not enough? Jesus says, I'm going to usher in a kingdom where that feeling is no longer found. Where you never have to feel the sort of contempt or disdain. Even you ever had contempt for yourself? You just can't live with yourself. I can't even think about the way that I was or what I've done. And Jesus is ushering in a kingdom where that kind of thing is going to be replaced by, well, what in the world could replace? If that's totally gone, what now? Glory. So, so far, here's what's being described. Jesus is going to bring in a kingdom that will have no gloom, a relief of anguish, a removal of all contempt, and glory. Are we listening yet? 
Is the, is the ease of repentance, the rejecting of self, and the, the reordering of your mind, is it more appealing now? Are we starting to get closer to the door? Can we walk through it? And that's not even all. He goes on to say that these people, the imagery is they were dwelling in darkness and they've now seen a great light. Let me tell you, darkness is used throughout the world over as an image of sin and fallenness and chaos. It's a place of coldness and unknown. One of the things that I absolutely hated the the most about growing up in a very northern place was the utter darkness in the winter. I would leave every day of basketball practice in utter and total darkness. You'd be walking home from school, 4.40, crunching through terrible snow, like 4.30 in the afternoon, total dark. People that live there are suffering from what has been termed seasonal affective disorder. They are medically sad. That's the acronym for it. They're sad. Darkness is a place of fear for many people. And Jesus ushers in a kind of kingdom where he says, you know the feeling of darkness of not knowing, of chaos, of shame, of hiding, of scheming, of fear, of coldness, gone. In fact, by the time the kingdom is in full bloom and described throughout the New Testament, Jesus himself will be a sun that never, ever goes down. Pure light all the time. And everything, not only in actual physical light, but light being a symbol for things being known. Everyone being perfectly trustworthy and honesty that is piercing. That's the kind of kingdom that Jesus is going to usher in. It goes on in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 4 to say that they'd been dwelling in a region and the shadow of death. What a phrase. We all live, whether we like it or not, and we do everything we can to push this thought off. We all live under the shadow of death. If you've ever experienced the death of a loved one, someone close to you, you know how absolutely unnatural it is. I had a friend share with me a song they liked. I think it was a Jason Isbell song, and I'm sure it was inappropriate. I don't remember, so this is not an advertisement for it. But he wrote a song about the death of one of his friends from cancer. Near the end of it, he has a line and he says, and the thing that we learn is that no one dies with dignity. And if you've ever experienced those moments where you realize just this, the pain and the grief that comes with real loss, death is insane. Someone's just no longer there. You have all the memories, you can think about it, they're just gone. And there's something that's so unnatural and so unsettling about death That when Jesus says, I'm ushering in a kingdom where that shadow of death will be removed forever, that we should all pay attention. It's okay for us to say that death is unnatural, that death is disturbing. And I imagine all the difficulty of dealing with actual death, let alone think about all that. He says the shadow of death. Death itself casts a shadow. How many of you live in fear? Fear that you'll find the lump. Fear that the blood work doesn't come back right. Fear that the spouse doesn't come home from the trip. Fear that the the child isn't going to be born healthy. Think of the shadow of the reality of death that covers. How much anxiety, how much prayer, how much time, how much money and insurance is spent. All living in the shadow of death. And... Jesus says, 
for the cost of repentance, for the cost of a change of mind, for the cost of stepping through the door, I'll usher you into a kingdom where death is even, you can't even be remembered any longer. Pure and total life. You know, what's the old, the cliche for like social media back in the day of like, is this relevant to your interests? Is there anything more relevant to our interests than life in the face of death? And this is the kind of kingdom that Jesus invites us to. So the commitment that I want to make and the thing that I want us to see, you know, the rest of Matthew, you know what's going to happen in Matthew chapter 5? It comes right after this. This 5 is after 4. But right after, right after this, Jesus begins preaching and here's what he wants us to see. He's going to say, let me tell you about what real human flourishing looks like. Let me tell you what actual happiness would be. Blessed is, and then he reorganizes their imagination of life. Jesus is going to go and he's going to say, diseases, oh, these are going to be things of the past. Let me take that from you. He's going to go to the downtrodden and those who are cast off. And he's going to say, do you feel contempt? Let me welcome you to myself. This is going to be a thing of the past. He's going to confront religious scoundrels and tell them to repent. He's going to find every single area of self-serving, redefining of life in the face of God's commands. He's going to upend all of that and he's going to welcome people in to a kingdom. Seven times he's going to say directly, he's going to say, the kingdom of heaven is like, aren't these the best moments of Jesus' ministry? What made Jesus appealing is the times when he said, no, give me the coin or let me tell you a story about a merchant. Actually, let me, he's constantly saying things like this. How can I capture your heart and your imagination? Let me tell you what the kingdom is like. This is what it's going to be like to live with me. And so what I want to do is commit to that. I want to commit to looking more curiously at the text of the Bible, saying, what is this kingdom like? And what I want to do is not only preach the king, which I hope we do endlessly. I hope you see Jesus so clearly because you're a part of our church. And not only preach the doorway. I hope we're honest about the need for repentance. We don't get to make up our own way. But at the same time, I want to capture your heart and your imagination by describing what this Jesus offers us. What is, like, what is life like in his kingdom? Well, it's perfection. It is true life itself.